Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 16th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel decision approved a reduction of a peace officer's rating based upon the Almaraz-Guzman rationale. Here's what happened in the case of Frazier versus the state of California. Edward Frazier, a peace officer with the Department of Corrections, had a presumptive industrial heart injury. His diagnosis was hypertensive heart disease accompanied by mild left ventricular hypertrophy. The AME determined that Table 4.2 of the AMA Guide's 5th edition would require a 30% whole person impairment. However, the AME said that while this whole person impairment was appropriate, it was not an accurate representation of his impairment. The AME referred to the new AMA Guide's 6th edition as a standard text or for recent research data to support his conclusion that the 30% whole person impairment was too high. The writers of this recent publication decided that 30% whole person impairment was too high for an asymptomatic mild ventricular hypertrophy. The same mild left ventricular hypertrophy in the sixth edition would assign an impairment of 23% whole person impairment. In conclusion, the AME chose 24% as the most accurate description of this injured worker's impairment. This percentage was a combination of his consideration of the analysis of the AMA 6 edition, his clinical judgment, as well as his analogizing with the Coumadin paragraph 96C of the AMA 5th edition, which has a lower impairment for asymptomatic conditions with serious health risks. The 24% impairment after the formal rating resulted in a permanent partial disability of 44%, which was awarded by the workers' comp judge. The WCAB denied reconsideration in the panel decision of Edward Frazier versus the State of California CDCR Correctional Training Facility. This is perhaps the first case in the workers' compensation literature where the more conservative sixth edition of the AMA guides has been used to justify a rating. And now, our fraud report. Insurance fraud is on the rise. That's a consensus of a majority of respondents to a 2013 survey commissioned by FICO. Most survey respondents expect most categories of personal lines insurance to experience an increase in fraud losses of 10 to 20% or more. More than 60% attribute the continued rise in fraud to sustained economic hardship in America. 57% of respondents anticipate an increase in personal property fraud by individual policyholders. Around 58% said the same for personal auto insurance fraud and 69% expect a rise in workers' compensation fraud. Only around 11% of respondents view criminal gangs as the number one factor driving insurance fraud increases. Yet, 61% expect to see an increase in auto insurance fraud perpetrated by organized rings and 55% believe the same for workers' compensation fraud. This underscores a growing need for solutions that enable insurers to identify organized criminal activity. Some 30% of respondents report that they are already using link analysis in their efforts to detect fraud today, 
applying predictive analytics to find patterns among different claims that suggest organized activity. When asked to identify their major priorities in the fight against fraud, more than half cited the detection of fraud in a claim before it's paid. Around 54% of the respondents employ anti-fraud teams, either centralized or dedicated to specific lines of business. However, only 20% cited the hiring of additional special investigative unit personnel among their major priorities. This suggests that many of the insurers surveyed continue to face headcount constraints and need to figure out ways that smaller teams can work larger caseloads. Dr. J. Wijngorentine of Anaheim and Godwin Anyabor of Covina were convicted of fraudulently billing Medicare for medically unnecessary equipment and receiving paid kickbacks. Weisengarantin was sentenced to 27 months for recommending motorized wheelchairs and other equipment that patients did not need and sometimes never used. Co-defendant Godwin Onyavor, who, who ran a San Bernardino medical supply firm, fraudulently billed Medicare for the medically unnecessary equipment and paid kickbacks to the doctor. Onyavor was sentenced to 51 months in federal prison. During trial in Los Angeles federal court, several Medicare beneficiaries testified that they were lured to clinics with a promise of free items such as vitamins and juice only to receive motorized wheelchairs that they did not need or even want. Over about five years, these two defendants and others submitted about $1.5 million in false claims to Medicare and received nearly $1 million in reimbursements. Weisengarantin and Anyabor were each found guilty in April of conspiracy and healthcare fraud charges. Two other defendants, Heidi Morishita and Victoria Anyabor, are scheduled to be sentenced September 30th and October 7th, respectively. Huntington Park resident Rosa Maria Barajas, the wife of injured worker Jesus Barajas, was arrested for allegedly continuing to cash workers' compensation structured settlement benefits after her injured husband had died. She was receiving approximately $18,000 per month after his death in May 2010. Jesus Barajas suffered an industrial injury in 1997 when he fell from a scaffold while working from an Aramark uniform services. As a result of his accident, Jesus was comatose and declared legally brain dead. Rosa was appointed his legal guardian in 1998 by the WCAB and placed in charge of all of his finances. New York Life contacted the California Department of Insurance in 2013 to report that Barajas was continuing to collect on her deceased husband's workers' compensation structured settlement even after his death. Barajas had been receiving monthly payments of over $18,000 that would continue only while Jesus Barajas was alive, according to the Appeals Board order. Rosa Barajas was directed by the order to notify New York Life in the event of the demise of her husband. But according to the investigators, she failed to do so when Jesus Barajas died in May of 2010. Bail has been set at about $500,000, and if convicted, 
Brahas faces up to five years in state prison and a fine in excess of $500,000. And in regulatory news, months of heavy lobbying by the National Football League and other professional sports team owners paid off when lawmakers gave final passage to a bill to limit most workers' compensation claims by out-of-state professional athletes. The bill, AB 1309, cleared the state assembly on a 66-3 vote and was sent to Governor Jerry Brown for signature. The measure previously received an overwhelming endorsement in the state Senate with a 34-2 vote. The governor is expected to sign the bill into law. The proposal was opposed by the NFL Players Association and the AFL-CIO. It will close in, provision, in a provision in California law that allowed players from out-of-state to file workers' compensation claims for so-called cumulative trauma, including head injuries that manifested themselves years after their career had ended. Many of those players may have participated in just a handful of games in California over the course of their careers. Team owners argued that California had become a de facto forum for claims filed against football, baseball, basketball, hockey, and even soccer franchises and their insurance companies. Players unions countered that the employers don't want to be responsible for their former workers' head injuries and other ailments. Former athletes have filed more than 4,400 claims involving head and brain injuries since 2006. This bill, however, would not affect pending claims. Provisions that initially would have a retroactive effect were removed by a September 5th amendment to the bill. The bill now says that the amendments to the Labor Code apply to all claims for benefits pursuant to this division filed on or after September 15th, 2013. The previous version of the bill had provisions that would have applied retroactively to all pending claims not yet adjudicated. Thus, thousands of these claims already in the system will continue to move forward. The governor has until October 13th to sign or veto the bill. In 2007, California became the first state to change reimbursement rules with the intention of equalizing the prices paid for physician and even pharmacy dispense prescriptions. In 2012, WCRI study found that the 2007 change in California reduced the average prices paid for physician dispense prescriptions to close to the prices paid to pharmacies for the same drug. After the reform, many physicians continued to dispense in California. Nearly half of all prescriptions were still dispensed at doctor's offices post-reform. Since then, the WCRI says that at least 13 other states have adopted reforms similar to those in California. These states include Alabama, Arizona, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Tennessee. Florida also made law changes that were aimed at eliminating so-called pills, pill mills by prohibiting all Florida physicians from dispensing Schedule II and Schedule III narcotics. A few states have sought to prohibit or severely limit physicians from dispensing all prescription drugs directly to their patients. Six states, Massachusetts, New York, Texas, Montana, Utah, and Wyoming 
prohibit physician dispensing in general. Louisiana limits physician dispensing of narcotics to a 48-hour supply. And in medical news, steroid shots for carpal tunnel syndrome may help some sufferers in the short term, but according to new research, most people end up having surgery whether or not they get the shots. According to this study, steroids usually do not help enough to avoid surgery, which is somewhat surprising since many doctors routinely order the shots. It's estimated that 1 in 20 adults in the United States will experience carpal tunnel syndrome as a result of pressure on that median nerve that runs from the arm into the hand through the so-called carpal tunnel formed by bones and ligaments of the wrist. If, ligament forming, if lim ligaments forming that tunnel or tendons that also run through the tunnel become swollen, pressure on the nerve can cause tingling, weakness, or pain in the wrist and hand. The condition which can affect one or both hands is initially treated with wrist splints, then if rest doesn't bring improvement, with steroid shots. When neither splints nor steroids seem to help, the next step is to have surgery, an effective but costly remedy. Surgery is effective because by opening the carpal tunnel, there'll be a rapid dramatic decrease in the pressure and symptom relief, and the effect is usually durable. The cause of carpal tunnel syndrome is not completely known, but it's not surprising that surgery is more effective than shots. Steroids temporarily reduce local swelling and relieve pressure in the tunnel, but surgery actually makes the tunnel bigger and is a permanent solution. Surgery adds approximately 25% to the volume of the carpal tunnel area and provides more room for the tendons and nerve pre nerves present in the tunnel, he said. Experts do not think the new study's results would change the way carpal tunnel syndrome is treated. Most doctors first recommend splints, which can be very effective when used early, and take a medical image of the wrist to determine the severity of the disease. Steroids can help, for control pain, can help to control pain for a short while if the disease is not severe, but can probably be skipped if the carpal tunnel syndrome is severe and requires surgery. A new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine says that more than 1 in 10 patients being treated in intensive care units was at some point receiving what doctors deemed to be futile care. In those cases, critical care doctors believed people would never survive outside an ICU or that the burdens of their care grossly outweigh any benefits. Searchers, researchers found treating each of those patients cost about $4,000 every single day. Dr. Neil Wenger, director of the UCLA Healthcare Ethics Center of the Dafin Geffen School of Medicine, was a senior author of the study. He claims that the biggest issue more important than the cost issue is the use of highly advanced medical care that was designed to rescue people that instead gets used to prolong the dying process. For their study, Wenger and his colleagues first convened a group of 13 doctors who worked in critical care to agree on a definition of futile treatment. Categories included care for patients who were permanently unconscious or for whom death was imminent or treatment that could not achieve the patient's goals. Then, the researchers surveyed the attending critical care specialist in five ICUs every day for three months. 
during the study period, 36 doctors assessed 1,136 patients with an average of six assessments per patient. Of those patients, 11% were determined to be receiving futile treatment, and another 8.6% were perceived as receiving probably futile treatment. Most of those receiving futile care died before discharge or within six months of their ICU stay. The rest were left in severely compromised states, with many kept alive by machines. The study highlights the importance of having conversations with patients about their end-of-life care while they're still able to participate in those talks. Cosodiodomysosis, commonly known as Cossi or Valley Fever, as well as California Fever, and San Joaquin Valley Fever is a fungal disease that is sometimes claimed to be an industrial injury, especially among construction workers or those exposed to newly excavated work sites. It is endemic in certain parts of Arizona, California, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, Utah, and Northern Mexico. It's, a, it's dormant during long dry spells, but then develops as a mold with long filaments that break off into airborne spores in the rainy season. The spores are swept into the air by disruption of the soil, such as during construction, farming, or an earthquake. Infection is caused by inhalation of the particles. The disease is not transmitted from person to person. The infection ordinarily resolves, leaving the patient with a specific immunity to reinfection. However, in some cases, the infection may manifest itself repeatedly or permanently over the life of the patient. In those cases, an industrial claim may be costly. The U.S. National Public Health Institute Centers for Disease Control and Prevention called the disease a silent epidemic and acknowledged that there is no proven vaccine available. And now, a new CDC report shows an increase in California hospitalizations for the cosidodiomososis over the last decade. Similar increases were reported in Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, and Utah. And in other news, the DWC invites claims administrators, attorneys, and others to attend this online web training on the Qualified Medical Evaluator Panel Request Process. The training will provide tips on how to successfully submit represented panel QME requests and to gain tools to make panel requests easier and more efficient, leading to a shorter wait time. The course will also help avoid common errors in incomplete or inappropriate requests. Up to 90% of represented panel QME requests are improperly submitted since SB863 changes were implemented. The course will take place online Thursday, September 19th from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Pre-registration is not required for this free webinar meeting. However, ports available for the time training are limited. Attendees are encouraged to participate in groups. The technical specifications for accessing the webinar are posted on the DWC website. Students should make sure their computers can use Microsoft Office Live Meeting. That's Microsoft Office Live Meeting. The software download takes approximately 15 to 20 minutes. After installing the software, students should log in approximately five minutes before the meeting. 
Well, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and drop by again next week for more news.